All right, let's uh, let's jump into this this morning. Um, so we're in the middle of a series. We're doing a seven-week series, I think. Uh, boy, this is... Give me just a second here. I left my notes where I left off in the first service. Let me get back to the beginning. There we go. So we're doing a series called Rockin' the Rolls. Rocking the Rolls. And we're talking about the roles of men and women, but especially women, because that's the one I think that's been so much... Uh, misunderstood and abused <laughs> in church life. And so if you're visiting this morning or if you haven't gotten the other messages, you're stepping into, I think, about message seven of the series. And we've had different speakers that have made contributions. And my contribution to this series uh, this time around is talking about making your marriages work. Because if we take away all the role of mo- modeling uh, that we typically think that the Bible talks about, and we say, well, that's not exactly what the Bible's saying, uh, then we maybe are left. I know for some people it's been almost like taking away the foundation of their relationship. And so then the question becomes, well, then how do we uh, understand uh, our roles and how do we relate to one another? And I think it's been liberating. hope it's been liberating for you. So this is actually part two of a two-part of a seven-part. Did that make sense? On making your marriage work. So it it doesn't work unless you get the first one. If you weren't here for it, you can get it on our website or see Roger back there with the headphones on or or see Roseanne back here. That's better. See Roseanne back here at the table. Or you can go to our website, ndcpueblo.com. It's on there as well. All of the messages are. But let me just review for you, for those of you that might have missed uh, the first part. And the first thing we said was that actually the first thing affected by the fall, or that we see at least in the sequencing of the way that the story is told in Genesis, the first thing affected is not our relationship with God. The first thing that's affected is the marriage relationship and really the family relationship. Before Adam was hiding himself in fear from the presence of God in the trees of the garden, he hid uh, in the trees from God, but before he did that, he did what? He made a fig leaf apron, right? They made, they made fig leaves, aprons out of fig leaves, and covered themselves, thus putting a division, if you will, between that which God had joined together. So what we see is we see the fracture in the marriage relationship before uh, anything else affected by the fall. And then the theme continues in Genesis chapter 4 so that we see what's really affected in the fall primarily is the family relationships. Now what I'm going to teach you today, you can use in any area of your life. So if you're past that time of your life where you're, you're, you're not married anymore, or you're not there yet, or you're in between marriages or whatever the case may be, you're going to find uh, principles in here that you can use. Uh, and, and apply to your life that I think will be godly and I think will help you. So you can take the principles and use them to any area of life, but we're applying it specifically to marriage. So you see the marriage uh, relationship affected by the fall in Genesis 3. The next story is Genesis chapter 4 is the story of what? What comes after? Well, in Genesis chapter 3 we have the fall. What's next in the Genesis chapter 4? The story of... Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel are what? They're the offspring, right? They're the brothers. And things don't go so well for them. We find out that one kills the other one. I mean, literally, sheds blood, right? The first murder wasn't some stranger somewhere. It was a brother, right? Of course, I know some of you literalists are wondering, well, how could it not be a brother when you only had two people? But whatever. We won't get into all that. The Bible doesn't answer that question. So it's all speculation. But, uh, But you see clearly that the... Family relationships are affected there. Now, the other thing that we see as we read throughout the Bible is we discover that the Bible is full of dysfunctional families. From the very beginning, we see dysfunctional families. You think about Abraham and his family. Think about, think about the whole Hagar-Sarah incident and how that went down. And think about the strife that's there between the two brothers there. Think about Joseph being sold into slavery. Uh, I mean, this is dysfunctional family. Being sold into slavery, and then they, the brothers conspire against him and tell the father that he's dead, right? 
So uh, dad grieves the day. Anyway, and so any dysfunction that we talk about today is actually in the Bible. Even, I mean, there's, there's, there's bloodshed, there's strife, there's division, there's jealousy, there's betrayal. There's even incest in the Bible. And these are the patriarchs. <laughs> These are the good ones. These are the holy families. That, In fact, these are the families out of which the seed line of Messiah would come. Now contrast that today with the picture that we're given in the church world of marriage and family. And there's quite a break and a fracture. You could pick, take your pick of ministries out there that are ministering to the family, and I'm not trying to be critical of them at all. I thank God for anything that's being done to help families. But they hold up for us oftentimes models that, can I tell you, are just unrealistic. Or maybe they're just based more on leave it to beaver. Tell me you Maybe it's based more on leave it to beaver or whatever, Caillou. <laughs> if you have little kids. Then it's based actually on the Bible. Did you know that? Y'all are looking at me funny. So you have to ask yourself, if it didn't come from the Bible, where do we get, where do we find this modern perfect family when all the stories of the patriarchs, all the families that we see in the Bible, they're wrought with strife. Think about this. David wasn't even asked by his father to come before Samuel. Samuel comes to town and says, I've come to anoint one of your sons king. And he goes through all the sons, and he's looking around. What, is this it? <laughs> like, like Daddy thought so highly of David, he didn't even need... Can't be David, so they didn't even bring David to the party. So we have this role modeling, or what I like to call social engineering, that we do in the church. And here's how it goes. How many of you, ladies, have ever heard of the Proverbs 31 woman? How many of you have ever aspired to be a Proverbs 31 woman or, or, or subscribe to some devotional, the Proverbs 31 woman? <laughs> now, now, guys, be honest. How many of you have read the Proverbs 31 woman? And, you know, I know it wouldn't be like any of us to make comparisons in our heart and think, well, I mean, that, she is beyond Wonder Woman. Now, here's the problem, ladies, with you trying to be the Proverbs 31 woman. Here's the problem with it. The Proverbs 31 woman is, is not a wife in the book of Proverbs. Because if you look in the book of Proverbs, from the very beginning, all throughout the book, wisdom is personified as a woman. And there are warnings against adultery and harlotry, but I hate to tell you this, the harlot in the book of Proverbs is the wisdom, is a different kind of wisdom. See, the Bible talks in the book of James about the wisdom that comes from above and the wisdom that comes from beneath. The wisdom that comes from above is a woman in the book of Proverbs, and that is the wisdom of God. The harlot in the book of Proverbs is the wisdom that comes from beneath. So the woman that you are supposed to marry in Proverbs 31 is the wisdom that comes from God and from above, and it's that woman that can do all those things for you that are listed throughout the chapter. So ladies, some of you can breathe a sigh of relief. Now, I don't have a problem if you aspire to be that. Good luck. Because I don't think God put all of that in one woman. I'm just saying. But we got women trying to be the Proverbs 31 women and maybe even some men begrudging the fact that their wives aren't that. The second thing we do is we, we expect men to be Jesus because we take one verse that Paul said. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, if that isn't a high expectation for a wife to have. And so we almost put this pressure on men to be Jesus in their own family and to be hyper-spiritual because, after all, they're the prophet, priest, whatever, of their own home, right? And so men can feel all this pressure to be hyper-spiritual and the, the reality is, is that sometimes there are wives that are uh, more sensitive to certain aspects of spirituality that the husband is not sensitive to and we try to force him into a role that's not his to play. And so actually what we do is we hold up an image of the wife and an image of the husband and we put them together and actually that's called an idol. Because any image that you try to conform to other than the image of Christ is... Idolatry. <laughs> Shall we keep going? 
Now, what about children? What about what we expect out of our kids? Now, this, the, the, I think the place that the most pressure is felt here uh, on children is on preachers and pastors and church leaders. Because, after all, they should be the example of this perfect family. And, and you may just quit coming to church if they're not this perfect family. If they don't have their kids in all subjection, like one verse says, then maybe they're not worthy to rule the house of God or whatever. And so we put these unrealistic expectations on preachers' kids. And we don't let them be children. And it's idolatry. And it does not produce life. It produces death. If you don't believe me, I can help you out with that. Yeah, they were, they were pastors. <clears throat> Thank you. <laughs> See, I got somebody in here that feels my pain. Alright, so what's the answer? Let, let's come to Colossians chapter 1. We have to understand the family was affected by the fall. What is the only thing that fixes the fall? Or better yet, not what, but who is the only thing that fixes the fall? See, if Christ is anything, if we understand the gospel, if Jesus Christ is anything in the narrative of redemption, what he accomplishes is what we might call the undoing of Adam. Whatever was lost in Christ is restored in, I'm sorry, whatever was lost in Adam is restored in Christ. So if, if Adam was the reason for the fall of the family, then it's only through Christ that the family can be repaired and Exalted and put back together. But if we're looking at these roles and trying to fulfill them, we're looking at anything other than Him. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 says it this way. It says, For God was pleased to have all His fullness, all God's fullness, dwell in Him, Jesus. And through Him, Jesus, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. The reconciliation of all things happens at the cross. Peace happens at the cross through the person of Christ. So if you're going to have a Christian marriage, if you're going to have a Christian family, it's not fulfilling these unrealistic goals. It's actually having Christ at the center of your relationship. It's actually having Christ at the center of your family. And not just having Christ at the center of your family, but understanding His redemptive work and His redemptive power is the only thing that can make your marriage work. Now, it's also the place where the fullness of God flows into humanity, because Paul picks this up later in Colossians chapter 2, in verse 9 and 10. I'm going to read it from my translation first, then I'm going to borrow uh, Brother Bill's translation, because I liked it better. It made the point even stronger. I'm sorry, verse 8. I'm going to start in verse 8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition, social engineering. Sorry. That... <laughs> That depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. So even though you are a believer, even though you are a child of God, you and I can still be taken captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies by elemental spiritual forces. It's very important because we're going to come back to that. So then he says... For in Christ, in other words, here's where you need to take your foundation from for everything in life. Your foundation, your answer for everything in life is not found in philosophies. It's not found in human traditions. It's not found, certainly, in the elemental spiritual forces of this world. But the answer to everything is found in Christ. So in Christ, verse 9, it says, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Now what does Paul tell us in Colossians that we the church are, if not the body of Christ? So in reality, when he's talking about, he's already said in Jesus all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. When he gets to Colossians chapter 2, now what he's saying is, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells inside the church, inside the body of Christ. That we are the bodily form of the fullness of God in the earth. Very, very, very few people understand that. But that's actually what it says. Let me uh, read it to you from the Amplified, because it makes the point even stronger. <clears throat> Verse 
9 and 10, it says, For in Him the whole fullness of deity, the Godhead, continues to dwell in bodily form, giving complete expression of the divine nature. Then verse 10 reads this way, And you are in Him, not from Him or to Him, but in Him. You are in Him, made full, and come to fullness of life in Christ. You too are filled with the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and reach full spiritual stature. Love that. Sorry, I closed your Bible. Love that. So the fullness of who God is dwells inside the church. Dwells inside of us. So here's the reality. You can operate. The title of my message this morning, I meant to give this to you at the beginning. I'm sorry. I'm all over the place this morning. But the title of my message this morning, other than making marriage work, is Frogs into Princes. Frogs into Princes. Now, I'm sorry, uh, guys. Give me just a second. Because in the fairy tale, there was never a frog that turned into a princess. So it sounds like the frog puts the problem all on the guy, Right? Right? So, but it's just a metaphor, you understand? And so, ladies, you can be just as much a frog as your husband. Or just as much a princess as he can be a prince, right? Or, or changing frogs into royalty, right? So here's the reality. Did you know that the, in the Hebrew there's two different words for soul? It gets translated as soul in our Bibles, but two different words. The first one is nefesh. And nefesh is the word for soul that's always used of the animal kingdom. Do you know animals have souls? According to the Bible, they do. Because they're living creatures. They're nefesh. So when the Bible talks about the soul taking on, uh, being a nefesh, it's talking about the beastly nature of the soul that has come about because of the fall of Adam. There's a reason we call it a fall. So it's taking on that fallen nature of Adam. There's another word called nesama. The nesama is the, the, the faculty of the soul when it is being breathed upon by God. So it's the soul representing the higher spiritual capacities or the fullness of Christ. And so you can operate as a believer either out of nefesh or you can operate out of nesama. Or the way Paul does it, in the Apostle Paul, you can operate out of Adam or you can operate out of Christ. You can be a frog, or you can be a princess. Right? So, let's come at it first from the positive. If you operate in Christ as, a, as royalty, you are bringing the life of God and positive and holy and spiritual forces that come from God to bear upon the earth and to give it life. So if you put it in the context of marriage, when you act out of who you are in Christ, you're bringing the life of God, you're bringing the spiritual forces of God through you to bear upon your marriage. Or you can choose to operate out of fallen Adam. You operate out of fallen Adam when you are taken captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies by spiritual forces. Why do spiritual forces want to take you captive? Because they want to exercise something through you. Do you understand that every fallen demonic or spiritual force is exactly that spiritual? Which means it does not have a direct connection to the material world like you and I do. We are mistaken to believe that people who practice witchcraft get their power from demonic spirits. Because the reality is, is that the power is latent inside the human being who is made in the image and the likeness of God. The reality is it's the other way around. People who are practicing witchcraft are being taken captive by spiritual forces who need to tap into the divine potential and capacity inside the human being in order to bring their will to pass in the material world. People who practice witchcraft are not getting their power from demons. Demons are getting their power from the people who practice witchcraft. That's just the truth. So the reality is, is that these spiritual forces would like nothing more than to take you or I who have been redeemed, who have been washed in the blood, who have been made new creations in Christ Jesus, who have the fullness of the Godhead dwelling inside of us. Can you imagine what they could do? 
if they take us captive through deceptive and follow hollow philosophies so that they can release their forces. So there are two unseen kingdoms. There is a kingdom of light that comes from God and there's a kingdom of darkness that comes from uh, spiritual forces that are destructive. God gives life. So these spiritual forces just consume. And they both want to see their kingdom come and their will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the human being is the, the channel of mediation through which those forces can establish their will, their power, and their authority. So here's what happens to you. you got the two spiritual kingdoms are represented by two spiritual archetypes. Adam and Christ. And we conform in our thinking, feeling, believing, behaving patterns to one or the other. When we conform to the pattern of Christ, then the life of God, the fullness of God can be released into the earth. When we conform to the pattern of Adam, then the fullness of the fall can be released. So literally, when we conform to Adam, we're releasing the forces of our own destruction into our marriage, into our businesses, into our jobs, into our future. Or, if we're conforming to who Christ is, then we're releasing the life of God. But either way, you and I are the, 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 the channel of mediumship. Ah, sounded occultish, didn't it? But you're the media through which it's coming. That's your dignity, your place as a human being. So instead of acting like royalty, sometimes we act like frogs. Now, we're doing a series on Wednesday nights called Inside Out. And the reality is, is that life is lived from the inside out, whether you want it to be or not. Most people live under the hollow, deceptive delusion that life is happening to them without their participation. What happens is, is that through an illusion of the enemy, we surrender the God-given rights power and authority that is given us as human beings, much less, I'm not even talking about redeemed humanity, I'm talking about humanity, we surrender our power and we put the what we would call the locus of control outside of ourselves. Let me tell you one of the best ways we do that. You really made me angry when you did such and such. That really made me angry when that happened. But let's just pick on, let's just say Julie and I are having a tiff and I tell Julie, you really made me angry. What I just did was I made her responsible for what's going on inside of me. Not only did I make her responsible for what's going on inside of me, I made her the cause of what's going on inside of me. Which means I made her more powerful than me. I acted like a frog, didn't I? That's how we operate from the illusion. When I say this made me angry, that made me angry, this made me feel this, whatever. That's how we operate from the illusion that life is happening to us without our cooperation and control. And it's an illusion. You are still creating and generating the things that are going on to a large degree. You are influencing them. If I... Julie does something and I choose to become angry. I'm the one generating and creating all the anger and releasing the negativity of a spiritual force of anger, not her. I can blame it on her, but I'm just back to acting like fallen Adam. It was the woman you gave to be with me. She made me eat. See how that's an effect of the fall? So the reality is life is happening to you with your participation Life is happening to you from the inside out, whether you're aware of it or not. So you have a choice. You can live life awake with intention about what you're creating and manifesting. Or you can live life unconsciously, releasing destructive forces around you. Now here's how this works. The reason that we get stuck in this thing where we think that someone made me angry is there are activating events or and this is where my psychology background is going to come in a little bit, but it's going to be very, very practical, I promise you. Just, just hang with me on this. There are things in our life out here that are merely what we would call triggers or anchors or activating events that we have learned 
to associate certain internal states with. So I'll just give you an example. Let's just suppose that growing up, this is all supposition, that my mother had a very disappointed look whenever I would mess up. And, and, and so what would happen is, is I would learn to anchor a certain unresourceful, because I didn't want to mess up, right, as a kid. I didn't want to mess up. And so I would anchor that unresourceful state of shame or whatever to the look that mom would give me, right? So that becomes pattern into my life. Then I marry some unsuspecting victim, wife, lady, Jim, Jewel, who... I don't even know if it's the same look, but she does a, maybe a certain thing. There's something about it, the way that she can look or make her face gesture a certain way or whatever, that connects unconsciously, mind you, unconsciously in my mind, with the look that my mom gave me. So let's just suppose for a minute that Julie does have this disapproving look. She walks into the kitchen, and because I know I have a tendency to be a frog sometimes, and she has this disappointed look on her face, what happens to me? That disappointed look becomes the trigger, it becomes the anchor point, and becomes the activating event that uh, it's almost like that pushes on the little mouse on my internal computer that operates the program of unresourcefulness. And unresourcefulness might look something like this. Uh, I feel ashamed. I feel like a little boy. I feel like I need to hide and cover up what I did. <laughs> I feel defensive. And now comes the projection. So feel defensive. I don't like feeling defensive, so now I feel angry. And so now comes the projection. Well, what's wrong with you? Right? All of that in one three hundredth or one three thousandth of a second. So it creates the illusion that she caused it. And then I, now you see you develop these patterns in relationships, so then I, well what's the matter with you? And she over the years has developed an anchor, let's say, this is all speculation, to a certain tone of voice that I have. That puts her on the defensive. That it activates a whole program for her of, of shame and I'm not measuring up or who knows. Right? And so she comes in with the look. Now the deal is she's disappointed about her favorite program wasn't on TV or something. I don't know. It has nothing to do with me. But she, or she's not feeling well, so she's walking in with this expression on her face. But I've learned to internalize it as something else. So it triggers me. So then I give a certain tone of voice. So that triggers her. So the next thing you know, we're, this is somebody else's home. But, you know, I don't, I don't want to talk about my counsel. I don't want to talk about my counseling experiences, you know, so I just make them about me. Because, you know, we're just royalty all the time. Whatever. No, this is true. So, <laughs> so what happens is you have thousands of those set up in patterns in relationships. And so what happens is you just keep firing triggers off at each other all the time. And you project it as outside. If only Julie would just be happy all the time. <laughs> if only Julie would give me a break. If only Julie would, would tell me that she loves me more. Or if only, you know... <laughs> and then she's thinking, if only Aaron would, you know... Take out the trash once a month or whatever. And you see how, so you, you create, so actually what's happened with two people is they have created a system of relating, but the real issue is what's going on in the thought and feeling states inside. So how many of you can identify some unresourceful states? So one of the people that I've read a lot and his, the person that developed a lot of the stuff that we do in Freedom Prayer, actually, is a guy named Michael Hall, who is a psychologist who lives in Grand Junction. And Michael Hall calls these dragon states. So I'm going to shift metaphors for a minute. I'm going to go from frogs into princes, royalty. And I'm going to talk, let's talk a little bit about slaying dragons. 
Because when you and I have a state that is anchored to something that just takes us over. Anybody ever been emotionally hijacked? Anybody ever been having a good day? And then all of a sudden something happens and then you're living sanctified, you're living holy, you just had good morning with Jesus or whatever. And then something happens like this dragon state just comes out. You're like, whoa, where'd that come from? I thought I dealt with that. Anybody? Yeah. So the, the, the reality is, is that we create mental and emotional dragon states. Let me name a few for you. Wrath, strife, jealousy, resentment, bitterness, shame, frigidity, fear. Did I find yours yet? <laughs> Depression, disappointment. These are all dragon states. They're all places where we've been taken captive by philosophies and by the spiritual forces of this world. And so the reality is, here's what's happening. When a dragon state gets activated, there's literally, literally, literally a destructive spiritual force that is being released over your life, that is being released over your family, that's being released over your marriage, that's being released over your situation, that is designed for your own destruction. Absolutely true. So you end up making it worse instead of better. So let's, let's slay some dragons. How would you slay a dragon? Once you make the decision to slay a dragon, what's the first thing you have to do if you're going to get one? You have to find it, right? You have to go on a dragon hunt. And the problem is, is that these dragons exist as mental and emotional states inside of us. So as long as you're trying to fix life out here, you're not going to find the dragon. See, that's dragons are smart. Dragons are good at hiding from us because dragons convince us that what's really going on is out here and we put all our effort and our energy into fixing what's going on out there instead of realizing that the dragon is hiding as a mental and emotional state on the inside. So if you and I want to be dragon slayers, then we have to get good at paying attention to what's going on inside us at a thinking, feeling level. We have to notice the patterns that are in our life. So most married couples can recognize patterns of dysfunction that are working out in their marriage. And most couples think if the other would just do right, the problem would be fixed. Why don't you try a different approach? Next time when those things are happening, why don't you just observe? Why don't you hunt? What's the dragon inside me? Why don't you start asking yourself, when I get a certain look from Julie, what thoughts and feelings start firing off inside of me? And just pay attention internally. And you'll find your dragon pretty quickly. Now, there are two places to deal a deadly blow to a dragon. Just like any other creature. Where would you aim if you were trying to deal a certain death blow? Where else might you aim? The head, the heart and the head, right? So we're going to do both, but we're going to do it in reverse order. We're going to cut the head off first. And then to make sure it doesn't grow another one, because there's a seven-headed dragon in the book of Revelation. So to make sure it doesn't have another head hiding behind that, we're going to stick something in the heart just to make sure we got it. Is that all right? So to go after the head, what takes place in the head? Thoughts. So the first thing you have to do is you have to hunt for the head of the dragon. You have to find out what am I thinking when this happens? When this activating event occurs, what are the thoughts that without my control, without even my awareness oftentimes, begin to filter and fly through my head? I messed up. I'm such a disappointment. I can't do anything right. I can't do anything right. She's never happy with anything that I do. Right? So you gotta first notice what's happening. Then the second thing you gotta do is you gotta bring that dragon out of hiding. How do you bring the dragon out of hiding? You have to expose it or you have to externalize it. You, this is a very important step. You must externalize those thoughts. As long as they're staying hidden, unspoken or unexpressed in your head, that you cannot cut off the head of the dragon. Which means you have to talk about it. Anybody ever, don't, don't raise your hand. Anybody ever gone to therapy and talked about how you were thinking and as you were talking about how you were thinking, you thought that sounds crazy. Anybody ever talked to a friend? Those of us that don't go to therapy. Those of you, let me rephrase that. Those of you that don't go to therapy. 
because I happen to believe in it. Um, so, <laughs> just messed somebody up right there, but <clears throat> you've been talking to a friend, and as you're talking about what you're thinking, you think that's crazy. Okay, those of you that don't have any friends, because the dragon states have totally taken over your life. Like, cause seriously, because like, if you don't have any friends, you've got a lot of dragons. So, sit down with a pen and paper and start writing down what you think. And you'll start noticing, you just almost immediately you'll start noticing, that's crazy. Now, don't bed down with the dragon, we're trying to kill it. You can make yourself sicker. If you are not out to kill. So first thing is, you gotta decide you're gonna kill the dragon. Alright? So then you have to challenge those thoughts. So you consciously externalize them. Then, how do you cut off the head of the dragon? By pulling it apart. So you have to pull apart those thoughts. So the best way I know to do that is to ask yourself questions. Don't try to counter. One of the worst things you can do is try to counter a, a, a negative thought with a positive thought. Yes, I am a therapist, psychologist. I've read all the positive thinking stuff since Norman Vincent Peale. One of the worst things you can do is try to counter a negative thought with a positive thought. Because you haven't slayed the dragon when you do that. You have to slay the dragon. You have to cut off the head of the dragon. You cannot just replace it. You've got to be deadly with it. So you have to get rid of those thoughts. So how do you get rid of those thoughts? The, the only way, the only way I know how to do that is to start questioning and challenging those thoughts. So I would do that with questions. So, so here's a few. All you have to do is take all the, the question words, except for why. Everybody listen to me real carefully. Do not use why. It's one of the worst questions ever invented for killing dragons. The why is the defense. You know why? Because the answer to why is always a reason. And behind a reason is always justification. And an excuse. But always a reason. And so I'm actually working against myself when I say why, because I'm giving the dragon a voice to reinforce itself inside my life. Does that make sense? To give me a reason for its existence. So I don't ask the why question. But what, where, when, how are all on the table. So what am I thinking? When do I think this? Because I don't think it all the time. Where did I learn to think like this? How about who? Who taught me how to think like this? Who said? Who said you're supposed to be a Proverbs 31 woman? That's how I arrive at a lot of my, question, a lot of my conclusions. <laughs> who said the perfect Christian family looks like this? Where did I learn that? And then, this is a great one, how do they know? Here's another one for you. Is this adding value to your life? Is this enhancing it? Is it improving it? Is it making you feel good about yourself? Is it giving you good outcomes in your marriage? Here's another one. What if I gave up this way of thinking? What if, I, what if I gave up this way of thinking? What if I chose to think differently? How about this one? Do I have to think like this? Does it always work this way? In every circumstance and in every situation. See what I'm doing? You can do this yourself. And what you'll discover is you, you can just pull all that thought structure apart and it looks silly to you. And when it no longer seems resourceful, you are designed by God to give up what isn't working for you. You just have to realize it's not working for you. It's that easy. Now, second thing you do, you cut off the head. What are you going to do next? Kill your dragon. Come on, guys, stay with me. I'm almost done, but this is important. What are you going to do? You're going to go after the heart. What comes from the heart? Feelings. 
So you can't ignore the feeling part of this. So you have to do the same thing. You have to externalize it. I'm feeling, watch this, angry. I'm feeling depressed. I'm feeling hopeless. I'm feeling resentful. I'm feeling powerless. I'm feeling insecure. I'm feeling hateful. I know we don't use that one as a Christian, but... Now, here's the problem. It's good to do that. You want to do that. This is an important step. You have to identify it. But here's the problem. None of those are feelings. All of those are concepts. They may be emotions, but feelings have sensations. I just rocked somebody's world there. What do you mean anger is not a feeling? It's not a feeling. Heat is a feeling. Cold is a feeling. Pressure is a feeling. Smooth and rough is a feeling. Pain and pleasure connects with feelings. Static, stuck, or flowing and moving, vibrating. So you have to go further once you identify anger. Then you have to ask yourself, what are the specific sensations that I experience when I feel angry? Where do I feel anger? I feel it coming from my toes. And it gradually builds up until I get a knot right here in my stomach. And then pretty soon, and this happens really fast, I got Tabasco sauce coming through my neck, the veins in my neck, up into my head and turning my ears bright red because I can feel them getting hot. And then I got this pounding sensation in my head and I actually catch myself making a fist. Now we're getting somewhere. Or, it could be, I mean, you get the point, right? I'm out of time. Write all that stuff down. Then what do you do? Because you can't, you cannot reason with your feelings. That's the problem. You, you cannot, you cannot, you don't, you don't drive a stake into the heart the same way or a lance, you don't drive a lance into the heart the same way you take a sword and cut off a head. You can't reason with you. You can't ask the what, when, how. You can't do that. But what you can do is you can take control of those sensations and start, what would happen? Seriously, it sounds crazy, I know. But what would happen if I release that pressure that I'm feeling inside? Because when I feel that pressure, I can actually feel these muscles tighten up. So what I'm going to do now is I'm just going to relax those muscles. What would happen if, uh, as the Tabasco sauce is going up through my head, I just go ahead and let it go all the way out my head? <laughs> and not through my mouth. <laughs> I promise you, you start doing that stuff and you start tearing apart these states. You want to know the best way to deal with your dragons? Who do you suppose is the best dragon slayer in the universe. So one of the best things you can do is catch your dragon and take it into the presence of God. But most people I found, the Christians, won't, don't know how to take their dragons into the presence of God because they mistakenly think that they're the dragon. Or they mistakenly think if they bring a dragon state into the presence of God that he thinks they're the dragon. And so they've been so busy hiding their dragon states from God that the thought of bringing them into the presence of God is frightful. Because we've taught them, after all, sin will break your fellowship with God. And we've labeled those dragon states as sin. And so I, how do I bring that into the presence of God? I have to repent from it. I have to turn from it. And we're back to independent self-effort. The reality is you're not the dragon. You are a son and a daughter of God. Listen to me. What Jesus Christ did for you and me is absolutely eternal and unchangeable. And neither you nor I nor any spiritual force nor any person ever created is powerful enough to separate you from the love of God or to undo the eternal redemption that was finished in Christ. When Christ said it was finished, it was forever settled in heaven who you are because of the redemption, because of the incarnation, because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. 
Spirit because of the blood of Jesus Christ who you are is an eternal unchangeable fact you are a new creation you are the righteousness of God you are a son and a daughter of God you're an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ Jesus and you may just have some dragons hiding in your bosom but that never changes the fact you may have some frogs in your pants but that does not change the fact that you are absolute royalty in the eyes and the mind of God on your worst day and on your best day you are redeemed you are saved you are delivered your identity your DNA down to your very DNA is absolutely divine because you are a child of the living God so don't ever think that you're the dragon you are not the dragon The dragon uses you to operate through. So I can bring my dragon state into the presence of the one who... When, when I, yeah, okay, I preach just a little bit. So, so you've got to stop putting everything off into the future. There are things that we read that we think are the second coming, but they're not the second coming. The, the heavens are open. The heavens opened when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. And ain't no devil in hell ever been strong enough or powerful enough to close them. We do not need to have open heaven conferences unless it is to renew our mind to the fact that we all already live under an open heaven. So in Revelation, when it says the heavens open and He's riding a white horse and out of His mouth there comes a sharp two-edged sword, it is a picture for you of the risen and exalted Christ coming to bring redemption and make it a reality in your life. It's not necessarily the second coming. You have to read that into the text. So what if you bring your dragon into the presence of the One who comes out of heaven riding a white horse and you realize there's no separation between you and heaven because heaven's open. You can go there anytime you want to. And you can bring your dragons with you because when you bring your dragon with you, the One whose sword, the living Word of the living Christ comes forth out of His mouth and He speaks powerfully into the midst of your thinking. And He speaks powerfully into the midst of your feeling. And He drives His lance, if you will, into the heart of the dragon and cuts off its head and sends you away free. Because who the Son is set free is free indeed. I got through half my message. Because the second half is learning how to release the spiritual power of life from who you are in Christ into your marriage, into your family, into your job. Because that's what God's called us to do, to give life to the world. That doesn't mean just going out and knocking on your neighbor's door and telling them about Jesus and heading them a track. Or praying for them because they're sick. It means that whenever we act out of who we are in Christ, we're releasing life into the world. So I can be on my job and never tell anybody about Jesus, but be Christ-like on my job, and I'm releasing life, and it's doing something to bring redemption and rectification into my job. I can be like Christ in my marriage, and it's releasing life, and it's doing something to bring rectification. One last area I want to address just real quickly. Some of you, some of us, We have dragon states about our future. Especially in this silly political season that we're in. Because somehow we think our future hinges on Trump or Hillary. Or Bernie or whatever. Right? Or whatever. You can have a dragon state about your future. You start thinking about your future and you don't feel resourceful. You start thinking about your future and you don't feel like it's full of abundance. You don't feel like it's full of elegance. You don't feel like it's full of opportunities. You feel insecure, you feel afraid, you feel depressed, you feel hopeless, whatever it is. Those are dragon states. So you can do the same thing. You can, you can locate that dragon, because I'm going to tell you something. If we can ever get a hold of the fact that the future really is not happening in front of us, it's happening inside of us. And we are participating and co-creating with God the future and the reality that we are to walk into from the inside out. 
Then we begin to realize how important it is to be full of faith and to be full of confidence and to be very resourceful as you navigate your way into the future because you're literally releasing a spiritual force of redemption. You're literally releasing a spiritual force of life. You're literally releasing out of the Logos Himself a creative energy that is going to realign everything in your life to create the future that God has for you, working together with Him to bring it to pass. Most prayer is nothing more than magical thinking. Somehow I think if I just pray, then God's obligated to do something. No, you're always a participant in your life. God will not do your life without you. God will not do your life without you. God will do life with you, which means you're a participant in influencing and co-creating outcomes with Him by faith. And if you think going, now I'm all for therapy, but if you think going to therapy or getting prayed for or getting in the right meeting or whatever is going to get you healed, you have the same problem that we started with saying so-and-so made me mad. If so-and-so can make you well, you've put the locus of control outside yourself and you've given away your power. That's why there was a proverb in this first century, physician, heal thyself. Because ultimately... We have to do the work ourselves. So in a minute, we'll have our ministry teams come and you can receive prayer. But don't come putting the thinking that the prayer is going to do it. Come really get this CD, get the first service because it's a little bit more concise. Watch it. Sit down with a piece of paper. Work through the pattern that I'm giving you and watch. Bring it into the presence of God. Let him speak into your life. And watch how things in your life will begin to change. But I'm telling you, it's the only way it's going to happen. And you have to do the work because God will not rob you of the dignity or the honor of being his son and no, or daughter and knowing how powerful you really are. Eat from your own tree. Not always somebody else's. Let's stand up. Let's stand up. Thank you. I'm just going to pray a prayer over you, and then I'll, I'll turn it back over to Trent. But lift your hands, if you would, with me. I went longer than I wanted to today. That's new for me. It's hot in here. We need to get the thermostat figured out, I think. Let's lift our hands. Heavenly Father, we just give you thanks and praise. Lord, I thank you for every person that's in this building. I thank you for every marriage family. Lord, I thank you for all the people that they represent, not just their families, but their neighborhoods, their jobs. There's so many more people, Lord, here than is actually here. And so, Father, I just speak a blessing over that entire company. Father, we just ask that there would be a release of the power, a release of the life, a release of the goodness, and and the measure of your holiness and of who you are. Father, over every person that's here, every person that will watch us, every person that will put it into practice, Lord, let there be a special grace that would just, just wash over every person that is determined to become a dragon slayer and determined to live life from a place of empowerment and royalty. And Lord, anyone that doesn't know you by chance, Father, I pray that this will be the day that they come to know you. That this will be the day that they surrender and give their life to you. And I just give you thanks and praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen.